and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background. This is the episode 61 of February 17, 2022. My guest this week is a contributor to media outlets such as The Hill, The American Conservative and The Week, Paul Bryan. He recently published a piece in Inside Sources on the trade relationship between the EU and the United States as it relates to agriculture. A link to that piece will be in the description of this podcast, and you can listen to the entire exchange at the end of this podcast. Also in this episode, the EU's relationship with Africa and an interesting webinar uh, by Euractive that relates to agriculture as well, where I found some interesting statements by the representative of the Department General for Agriculture of the European Commission uh, that I uh, strongly disagree with, so we'll be able to talk about that. Also, Luca Bertiletti, my colleague from Italy, is joining the podcast to talk about the EU's CHIPS Act. So let's get started. The European Union and African leaders are coming together for a uh, long-delayed EU-Africa summit in Brussels uh, this week. And the entire purpose of this summit is to strengthen the relationship, the investment relationship between African countries and the European Union. This is because uh, especially China, uh, Russia, the UK and Turkey and also the United States are increasingly um, important for the African continent and Europe uh, uh, losing its grip on the continent uh, from an investment perspective. So this is supposed to be upgraded. And of course, food is a part of that. And I found it quite interesting when I attended uh, a webinar by Euractiv. Uh, This is the uh, EU-centric news outlet, uh, Euractiv, which hosted a a webinar with the title Sustainable Agriculture Transformation Agenda for Africa, Empowering Farmers and Building Food Security Sustainably. Now, they had interesting uh, guests on and interesting topics to talk about. And, and a lot of things that I do work on within the Consumer Choice Center, their guests were, um, uh, amongst others, John Clark, Director International uh, for DG uh, Agri at the European Commission, Godfrey Bahiga, he is a uh, Director at the Agriculture and Rural Development uh, for the African Union Commission, even though, oh, actually, I think he didn't join in the end. Uh, there was a farmer from Kenya who joined um, and uh, also somebody from uh, CropLife, as well as uh, a, a member of the European Parliament from, from Germany, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong. So, uh, so interesting conversations there. And when it got to uh, the questions by the audience, I thought there were really interesting parts there. Because uh, uh, let me just play you one and then we can get into it. The EU is debating to raise the sustainable standards on their food imports. How will it help African smallholders to meet these standards? Second question, many African countries have their own vision about sustainable food systems. What is the EU doing to align with different visions on food systems, on pesticide use, synthetic fertilizers, genetics uh, in African countries? The fear is that the EU will impose its own systems. John, how do you respond to those concerns? Well, I'll take the second question first. Of course, we don't, we, we do not and cannot and would not wish to impose on, on any other country in the world uh, uh, our own uh, system. Um, the, the reality, however, is that um, all countries in, in the recent United Nations Food Systems Summit um, uh, took on a number of um, commitments to, to improve the sustainability of their food system, all the way from the farm to the fork, from, from the farm gate to the, to the consumer. So we're all um, rowing in the same direction. Uh, Africa, Europe, uh, Asia, the Americas, we're all moving in the same direction because we all realize that uh, the planet 
needs to have a more sustainable food system. We may have different uh, ways to get there, but the aims are are all the same. So I think it's it's a it's um, uh, not not a not a, a a problem in itself. On the first question, uh, yes, the EU is um, is is co constantly uh, raising its um, its food standards uh, because there is an enormous consumer pressure to do so, and because we need to produce our food more sustainably uh, to use uh, fewer pesticides, uh, fewer fertilizers, um, and and uh, make our production more more environmentally uh, friendly. So yes, we we are unashamedly raising our standards. Um, if that creates difficulties for African exporters who, who may find in the future that for a particular crop, uh, cocoa or coffee or bananas or tropical fruits, if that creates a dif difficulty, uh, we are there with our development uh, support uh, to to ensure that uh, African farmers and the the companies that uh, that uh, are are producing for the for the European market can meet those standards and that's something that we are absolutely committed to doing now i find that quite problematic here what john clark basically said is that we have very high food standards within the european union for our imports we're applying those to our trade partners if as a result of us raising food standards that causes a problem for african farmers well then there will be some tough luck money for you in the end through development aid i think that's a very twisted view on what developing aid and also free trade growing through free trade is actually all about he also says that there's an increasing consumer demand for uh, for these raising of food standards but i think a lot of consumers don't actually realize what that exactly means we're over bureaucratizing agriculture and we're making it harder to get by these products especially in times when food inflation is such a hot topic and what we do actually for an african farmer trying to export to the european union is we tell them that these are the compliance costs that you will never meet, therefore just import our European food products and that will be cheaper for you overall. And that, I think, is a lot of the reason why Africa isn't the problem that it is right now. Africa has uh, supply chain problems and also you know, corruption problems within the government and also infrastructure problems all throughout uh, uh, different African nations. But it's also about the competition that it faces from Europe. And when that question was asked in the webinar, I was also very discontent with the answer that John Clark gave there. So let me play that for you as well. So the question is from Fernando Souza. Uh, and so he says, uh, what about the need to revise the international trade agreements which force African states to be flooded by foreign agricultural products, very often from the EU and the USA, with which they cannot compete? This should be a number one priority. So, John, I know this is something we hear from Africa quite often. How do you respond to that? Well, there's a lot of um, fake news about this, frankly. I'll be very blunt. Um, Africa is not flooded by European products. And African countries under WTO rules remain uh, absolutely free if they choose to, to block imports. Uh, they, they choose not to do so because um, Africa cannot today, unfortunately, feed itself and there are very big urban populations uh, who need uh, protein, which cannot be found locally. And therefore, the governments in Africa have decided to um, uh, open their markets to some imports uh, from Europe or other countries to feed um, um, growing and, and increasingly um, uh, turbulent urban populations. But as I, as I said, under the WTO rules and under the, um, the arrangements of our uh, bilateral economic partnership agreements, 
uh, African countries are, are completely at liberty uh, not to import uh, European uh, milk powder or, or poultry. They choose not to do so. So the answer basically here is that um, the continent of Africa is not flooded with European food products because, and then there's no answer to the actual question, and then he says, well, within the WTO rules, Africa has the possibility to impose protectionism by itself. But that's not an answer to the actual question. The question was about whether the African continent is being flooded by European products and if that has an effect on how much agricultural output that Africa can produce. And he just responded by saying, well, look, I mean, you have the ability to make uh, uh, um, uh, restrictions of its own. He does even go into the reasons why that's not a possibility for Africa, because Africa is actually largely dependent on imports right now. But that doesn't contradict the fact that it's flooded with cheap imports because we subsidize our, our, our agricultural products. Now, the reality on the numbers is also that 65% of EU exports to sub-Saharan Africa are consumer-oriented products. And then also you have the fact that the EU makes up 27% of all imports uh, to the continent where imports are increasingly important. Now, the counter-argument of some of the people, and I have read this on the Brookings Institute, who say that Africa has actually been able to increase its production levels. And that's true, but we have to compare likes with likes. The problem is that Africa has a population dynamic, a population growth that we do not have in Europe. And if you have an increased population, then you also need increased production. But if that doesn't match a reduction in imports, then still there is a there's an imbalance there. And the problem is that when we look at the FAO numbers, um, uh, those are pretty old. So even if I, I looked at the most recent report, this from 2011, so we don't actually have reliable data on that. And that is the problem here, is that Europe is not actually, you know, communicating openly about what is the actual effect of EU imports to the African market? What does it mean for local farmers? We can't just cop out and say, like, oh, I mean, in worst case, you can still like impose uh, any, any type of tariffs or just ban the products from the market. But that is not an option for many countries. The option should be that there is a fair competition between products. And if we complain about the Chinese subsidizing its solar panels and then bringing them to Europe, and as a result of that, we restrict them, then we should also agree we're doing the same thing to Africa when it comes to food. Next up, we're talking about the European Chips Act, which I admittedly don't know as much about. And so I brought my colleague from Italy, Luca Bertoletti, on to explain what is going on, what is this Chips Act, and what does it do? And also, how much does it cost? So, Luca, the uh, European Union is talking about a Chips Act. Now, I have to be transparent here and tell you that I don't know exactly what that's supposed to be about. Is the European Union making its own chips, or what's happening here? What What is this Chips Act? Well, it's actually... Uh, a very bad copy of what Trump did back in 2018 when he, actually uh, 2019 when he started to ask a big chips company and semiconductors company to come back to US to produce semiconductor. And the European Union, after many years, actually, because we are talking about 2019, we are in 2022, decided to put out their own European Chip Act which is a multi-billion attempt to secure that its supply chain uh, is, is, made, is not in shortage anymore, so that all of the European industry that need chips will be able to have chips and to have a supply of chips. Well, let's be really honest. Uh, right now, there is no current manufacturer that uh, can, um, can produce this in Europe. 
uh, with no big actually manufacturer of chips in Europe per se, well, medium-sized enterprise, uh, ST Microelectronics is one of them, is one of the leading one, uh, with obviously Leonardo, Airbus, but we have very specific semiconductor products for certain type of chip of market and not a, a broader in market can be as, like Intel or Qualcomm or TSMC. So what European Com Commission wants is actually to convince Intel, TSMC, Qualcomm, uh, Nvidia, etc. to actually come back, Samsung as well, to actually come to, to Europe and invest in European, uh, in European states to create their own facilities. So, well, you know, European, uh, US did the same, but they did on a national security issue. Uh, they say, okay, guys, we cannot actually, we have a geopolitical tension between the US and China, and we cannot have a production anymore rely just on China, you need to come back. And they give, gave a lot of incentives to come back to better tax incentive that actually uh, fiscalize quite a lot of things. Uh, uh, work labor is way cheaper than it should really is because there are a lot of incentives. We can discuss about the incentives later on, but like what US did is actually a strategy to for national security. What you unfortunately, what European did is actually a 43 billion euro of investment in a semiconductor. And uh, what is really funny is that of these 43 billion euros, we have no idea where we are from, like who is gonna pay? Because the concept, this is a, a act from the commission, but if you want to raise, commission cannot have obviously a debt. Uh, so, and fiscal policy is still state level. It's not European level. So what do those, what are those exactly, like what, what is that 43 billion supposed to achieve? What does it do? So what we want to do is to boost is the market share of cheap production by to 20% by 2030 from the current 9%. And I quote from the CHIP Act, um, produce the most sophisticated and energy efficient semiconductors in Europe and nowhere else. Uh, so that's what the uh, European Commission wants. Um, unfortunately, there are some problems here. Uh, the first big problem is actually that now there is a shortage. By 2030, the shortage will be away for very different reasons. First of all, because manufacturers are actually being built in many other places and not in Europe, and they are way faster in building there than in Europe. Here, we just presented the act. It still has to go for, from the parliament. It still needs to be approved by the member states. It still has to be approved by the council. So it has to take a lot. Um, I mean, Intel itself uh, just decided to create two chips plants uh, in Arizona to beat this uh, shortage. So TMC and Samsung, uh, they just uh, opened a new, uh, new things in uh, South Korea and Taiwan and India. Uh, the same did actually also, um, um, did also uh, Apple with their own chips. So, and if you think about what US have done, which is a two trillion economic stimulus package uh, for semiconductor in general, and 50 billion just for semiconductor manufacturing and research. What we are doing is 43 billion for manufacturing, which is like, why? If you do 
will search somewhere else, you actually produce also somewhere else. And uh, actually during the, mm, the very interesting uh, uh, press conference that the commission did, there is no clear agreement on the commission side how these 43 billions are gonna be spent because uh, von der Leyen said that it's gonna be a help for industry on state aid and French were really happy about that. Uh, but Vestager, uh, um, Commissioner Vestager actually said, we are not gonna reform, in the same press conference, we are not gonna reform the state aid. So there is no clear understanding of how we are gonna spend this 43 billion. And the last most important thing is that currently there is no, we, have, we should have a reform of the market label. Like there is no fiscal incentive to actually come to Europe. Like, if I want to build a, a plant, a, a microchip facility in, let's say, Germany, the cost is three times when building it in Turkey. If we don't want, let's say that we want to bring it in the neighboring country, it's three times that building it in the cost of labor itself, three times when doing it in Turkey, it's probably way more expensive than doing it even in Israel or anywhere in the Middle East. So it's a very nice, project, which to be honest, as many people have said on the media, there is actually a very nice article from Iraqi that uh, uh, I, um, I was reading that said that we actually need to boost by 30%, we actually need at least uh, 450 billion uh, of, of incentive and not 43 billion because it doesn't make sense. So. Honestly, it looks like that the commission is trying to put up a lot of everything, out a lot of things together and doesn't want to show itself as weak compared to the United States of China, which are both really heavily investing on shortage of, uh, uh, of microchips. But doing this is actually, to best obviously my opinion, but it's actually making full of itself because nobody's gonna in, invest. If not the plans that we already did, Intel already said they are gonna invest, but they said it one year ago. But now let's move to the interview of this week. My guest this week is Paul Bryan. He's a contributor to outlets in the US such as The Hill, The American Conservative and The Week. And he recently published an article on Insight Sources that I found quite interesting and uh, that is also linked to in the description of this podcast. And uh, yeah, so we chatted about EU and U.S. Uh, agricultural trade relations and how they might develop over time. What are the sort of the cultural and political reasons that go uh, into that relationship? So, yeah, take it away. All right. So, Paul, uh, thank you for coming on the on the podcast. I had uh, I had the pleasure of reading an opinion piece of yours in Inside Sources. The headline is in U.S. EU agricultural battle. Biden follows in Trump's footsteps so interesting piece there just uh, lead our listeners a bit through it what was your what was the argument uh, you were making with this piece what is uh, what is there to know for our listeners thanks bill yeah this article is basically about how the rhetoric of trump burning his bridges with the eu is overly simplified and uh, one way you can come at this is through the agriculture file so when you take a look at uh, US EU agriculture policy. You can see how the EU is pursuing some things that are very unpopular with uh, the American administration. This includes the Biden administration currently 
and formerly in the Trump administration. Um, so you've seen different secretaries of agriculture tackle this in different ways. But the main concern at this point is the farm to fork strategy that's being pursued by the EU and concern that the EU is basically um, becoming admired in overly idealistic and illogical policies. Um, part of this is opposition to pesticides, um, overly aggressive pushing of organic agriculture contrary to market forces, um, basically crippling the, the, the tendency of crippling their own agriculture industry for the sake of appeasing environmentalists and more or less um, trying to sound good. <laughs> so my article is about how the Trump and Biden approach to agriculture is not as different as they would like you to believe. And there are serious differences remaining between Washington and Brussels on agriculture, pesticide use, organic farming, and basically the US-EU trade balance on agriculture. Um, obviously, to say that it's in jeopardy is an exaggeration, but it certainly is not as comfortable or seamless as it could be with the EU being so influenced by uh, ideological policy on agriculture. Now, it's been interesting to me to observe this when uh, Secretary Fielsack came to the European Parliament and talked about agriculture. Um, is that uh, there are these considerable differences. And we in Europe thought that with different administrations, we might also eh, maybe eventually, like some of the, the, the pro-trade people said, oh, maybe we're going to have a better situation under uh, President Biden that we might have had under President Trump. But it turns out it's actually usually the European opposition that is that is that that stands in the way of a comprehensive trade agreement with TTIP, uh, with TTIP under Obama. That also failed not because of the Obama administration, but because of the Europeans. Uh, uh, that ultimately blocked it. Um, how optimistic are you that both sides can actually find common ground there? Um, well, I think that, you know, each side kind of whittles away at each other, tries to get concessions, and tries to find some way to both accommodate and cut down their more radical elements of their base or their, their stakeholders. You know, the U.S. also has um, its own players in the agriculture market, and um, Europe has ecologists and other environmentalists who are influencing a lot of institutions. But I think that in the end, most likely one side or the other is going to get more of what they want than the other. Um, likely that will be the United States, but particularly with a country like France, who is really aggressively pushing the organic farming and pesticide reduction, um, it, it could definitely lead to a real uptick in tensions or other spin-off effects um, because France's ability to back down from its organic farming production targets is sort of limited by the promises it's made and goals. Um, so, so you see European countries being um, sort of uh, pressed to the wall by their own stakeholders and they're, they're not able to back down easily, but from Washington's point of view, um, they're, they're not really comfortable with, with having uh, Europe be so beholden to the environmental, or you could call it pseudo-environmental, um, movement.
in uh, in Europe, we often have this uh, this view of the U.S. being this completely uh, liberalized market. Anything goes. You can really do whatever you want, and this also applies to agriculture. Anyone could put can put anything in your food, um, and that uh, the government is really not involved. Uh, do you see any misconceptions there about how agriculture is actually organized when it comes to you know anything from subsidies to food regulations? Is it completely a ruthless free market? Well, of course, all modern um, economies have a number of regulations and um, definitely government interventions, either directly or by default. I mean, just the decisions about what you allow to be imported into your country, byproducts, ingredients, production processes is inherently a judgment call of some kind. But I think obviously that the U.S. market is a lot freer than the European one, at least in terms of agriculture and then the products that come out of it when you look at the specific regulations or on subjects like genetically modified organisms gmos you can see that europe has taken a lot more steps to delegate exactly what will or will not be allowed in various jurisdictions and then whereas the united states allows that more up to consumer choice um so obviously you usually see higher price points when products are sold with healthier ingredients, well, quote unquote, healthier ingredients or uh, things that certain consumers may want more than others. Um, and But I think the idea that the U.S. is a totally open market is, is obviously um, not entirely accurate. And there's, there's plenty of regulations. It's just that uh, in comparison to somewhere like e the EU, it would be seen as a lot more open. Um, I think the EU is one of the more restricted markets when it comes to allowed ingredients or um, consumer choice because of uh, probably a number of factors, social, cultural, economic, and political. Now, North America also has this, a certain set of environmentalist groups. And uh, what I've been able to see is that uh, we sort of have this politicization of agriculture as well. So politics seems to creep into every domain and it's in it and it's not just sort of the 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 questions of how to to govern our, our sort of cultural norms it, it, it really creeps into the scientific era as well um why is that what is is, is this is this a bit of a an, an american illness this is creeping into politicizing everything are we are we being infected by that well i think that this is related to um the way that we think about science these days, or at least the way it is presented to us. So in the pure sense, science would be a process, if I understand correctly. But I think that what you see with the believe in science movement um, is sort of this idea that science is a, is a formed conclusion. And I think that's partly led to the politicization because you can claim the support of science for your side, for example, pro-GMO, anti-GMO. And then at that point, it's not really questionable because you stand on the side of science, quote unquote. So science is these settled conclusions. I mean, we have the weight of evidence on one side or another of various things, including agricultural policy. However, to say that agricultural policy is entirely settled or has reached a firm consensus, I think would not be completely accurate. There's always some questions to ask, different conditions of different growing, um, growing conditions and Factors. So I think that the politicization of science is a lot related to different ways of thinking of science and different objectives for 
what we want from society. Um, I do think the populist movement and the national populist um, growth in various countries is sort of a mix of idealism and um, reactionary elements that and that includes things like idealizing small-scale farming and more of moving back to a, an agrarian society in the way that we used to think of it. Um, but then the obvious challenge would be that we're living in a sophisticated modern world with, with uh, massive supply chains that can't really be filled by people growing a bit of corn in their yard or selling things at a market. Um, so you have that tension because I think that, um, people want to have their cake and eat it too. Quite, quite, quite literally, actually. Um, so, um, I, I had one more question for you before we get to the end, uh, of, of, of the segment. Um, and you brought this up in, in your answer just now, there seems to be sort of a bit of a disconnect. I, we noticed this in Europe. I bring this quote often uh, up a lot. Uh, um, Vice uh, Commissioner of the European uh, of the European Commission, uh, Franz Timmermans, he said in May 2020 that we've gotten used to food being too cheap, and uh, and that to me is sort of the ivory tower kind of statement you make when you have the sort of the income of a high level politician. Um, it seems that uh, um, it, it, both in North America and in Europe now we have sort of this 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 the the the, um, the conversation is led by the Whole Foods shopping. Uh, uh, People, what some people uh, use the, the the word of the elite, even though that's a bit uh, it's a bit too vague of an expression. But I think you you, you know where I'm what I'm getting to um, is um, do 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 you notice having the actual effect that the big city voters are having increasing power over the agricultural regulation that actually impact people that live in the rural areas and are we there eventually going to see a disconnect where sort of the states that are agriculture heavy are going to be in, in, in stark opposition to the states that are uh, that have very little agriculture but have the political institutions on their side yeah it's actually kind of ironic and um, you can see echoes of this in the uh, inflation debate going on in the United States um, it has been quite downplayed by people like Vice President Kamala Harris, who joked about uh, some food products costing a little more or something like that. I believe White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki urged people to drink margaritas or something if they're feeling stressed out. Uh, I think that there's um, obviously this kind of, uh, in the United States, they call them sort of coastal enclaves. And I know that in Europe, this may uh, focus in on some of the cities where you have uh, people who could tend to be of higher educational background or more involved in the government centers and policymaking institutions. Um, there's definitely a kind of disconnect where people who've been to, um, you know, the best law schools and uh, are very intelligent are claiming to speak on behalf of the quote unquote ordinary people. Um, but the, 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 the ironic thing would be that they maybe forgot to ask the ordinary people their opinion or, care when they heard it. Um, so, so you have obviously pigeonholing of um, ideological positions to fit what you already want to be true. And that's especially true of um, the elite. So I think with your question that it's definitely possible you could end up with the situation of um, things like agricultural policy being um, run supposedly on the behalf of um, citizens, but actually for the good of elite or specialized um, ideological and even aesthetic uh, uh, considerations. So 
Um, we know that not everyone, for example, has the ability to shop for organic, extremely um, healthy food. And, and this is a whole other topic, of course, as well, that gets more complicated. But the idea that um, you can just ignore the market or, or fully subsidize lower prices for organic food, I think has also been disproven in countries like Sri Lanka, which tried to force through organic farming and ended up basically having an emergency food crisis. Um, so even if you have idealistic beliefs about food, which I do somewhat have myself, I think that you have to pay attention to the reality around you and you have to be very skeptical of establishment politicians who claim to speak on behalf of everyone when they talk about food, agriculture and the economy. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Paul Bryan on Twitter at Paul R. Bryan. And of course, follow the Consumer Choice Center as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words. See you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. You've only